Uh, we're starting a brand new series today called Beyond These Walls. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the series as we go on uh, this Sunday morning. But grab your Bibles and your notepads out if you like to take notes. We like to take notes at Victory if you're new with us uh, because we believe that God will speak with us in these times that we have together. That something from his word will grab. You can write that down, reference it uh, later in the week. If you'd like, you can pull out the Victory Church app uh, and there's some fill-in-the-blank notes. You just click on this weekend's message. It has all of the points and all of the messages uh, all the verses that we'll cover today. I have an opportunity as we start September to kind of do what I do every year around this time of the year. And that is refocus our church on what is the heartbeat of our church to kind of refocus us on mission. So consider today kind of the explanation for last week. We ended the Roots series uh, talking about the local church, talking about what the church should be. So con- consider today kind of the parallel to that where I want to explain what our mission is as a church. I want to then go deeper and explain what the heartbeat of our church is, because I believe that it's God's heart as well, that the foundation of our church is God's heart for people as well. I want to talk to you today out of Luke chapter 15, so you can turn there in your Bibles uh, if you want to turn there. Jesus tells us three stories. This is actually my physical Bible, everybody, all right? Some of you have never seen this before. This is a Bible, all right? They made it in a paperback. Come on, somebody. They made it. Some of you only know the digital version. This is, it's good to have a physical Bible. I'll just tell that. We'd love to give you one. We got one at the info table for you. Good to underline things in there. Take some notes as God speaks to you, but I just thought I would show you what a physical Bible looks like, all right? But today's message is our heart as a church. Today's message is our mission. It's part of our vision. And I believe that these three stories show the vision of God's heart for people. They show the vision of God's heart for the world. And so chapter 15, verse one, we'll just kick right in. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, and this word is bolded here because that's not the word. That's not the word Jesus came up with to refer to these people. It's what the religious leaders came up with that they gave them. They were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered about those people. Now, I want to pause here just for a second, because I think it's incredible that Jesus always leans in relationally to a lot of people who disagree with him theologically. Come on, it's getting quiet in this church. All right, everybody, I can tell this is going to be a rough, rough morning. It was Jesus that always leaned into them. And he always leaned in relationally to people who disagreed with him theologically, people who were outcast from religion, people who were outcast in society. They were marginalized. And so these people who were marginalized and kind of put to the side and the religious folks didn't want to have anything to do with them, but they felt comfortable around Jesus. I think that's a perfect example of what the church should be, that we should have some people as if we are the hands and feet of Christ. If Jesus Christ is our leader, if he is the Lord of our church, then the church should reflect this as well, that we should have people around our gatherings and in our spiritual times together. We should have people that don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't act like us, don't believe like us. We should, they should feel welcome around us because that's the heart of God. That these people shouldn't feel marginalized, shouldn't feel pushed away, but they should be welcome when we come together. Come on, I can tell it's going to be rough this morning, all right? You put your seatbelts on, I got more for you, all right? It's going to be great this morning. So verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes, and here's where they come up with the phrase, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Come on, it's not just sinners, it's sinners, right? You've heard people talk. We talked about this last week. Religious folks, when they get in these pockets of religiosity, they start to mutter and gossip and talk about these people who are out on the fringes. They're the sinners. They're, they're everything that's wrong with this country, right? They're just the sinners. They just, just smoke and chew and run with those who do. Come on, somebody. They're just, they're just, they're just everything. Come on, they just, they're sinners. There's us. There's the Christians. Come on, we're the good people. We, we pay our taxes and we, we, you know, we're good and we do everything God wants us to do. And we, we just, we live in our thing. Yeah, yeah for the Christians, right? And then there's them, the sinners. Just the ones that, man, I just, I can't stand. We talked about, right? They smell, they smell like sin. 
They just, they just sinners. They just everything. Come on. And then they just need to get a job already. They just got to get, come on, just, just kick that addiction already, right? Just enough's enough. And religious people start to have this mentality. Jesus despised this mentality. He despised it. This us and them type of, type of thing. So he tells us three different stories in Luke 15. Be honest, these three stories guide our spiritual community. They guide who we are as a church. Story number one starts in verse three. Jesus told him this parable. In verse 3, in verse 3, story number 1, Luke 15, verse 3 says that Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors together. And he says, I, he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one, I think the Bible's funny sometimes because Jesus uses the term they were whispering and they're muttering. He says, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, he's saying there's a party in heaven every time one sinner comes to Christ than over the 99 people who think they're already good enough. There's a bigger party in heaven. He's kind of shifting our perspective here. There's three principles out of this story I want you to jot down. If you're taking notes, jot the first one down. Is that is you cannot lose what you don't originally possess. You can't lose what you don't originally possess. So you have to own something in order to lose it. It has to be yours in order to lose it. That seems simple enough, all right? But write it down anyways. Jot it down. Because the shepherd had 100 sheep initially, and then he lost one. So he had 100 sheep. Now, why does that matter when it comes to spiritual community? It matters because it changes our perspective of us and them mentality. And us in this camp and them and them. there isn't an us and them. There aren't two camps. There's all of us. There's all of us. Every single person is God's creation. Every single person was made by God. He has a plan and a purpose for their life. Every single person God created and he formed them in the womb and he has a plan and he has a purpose. And so it changes the way that we view them. Because it's not us over here and we're God's kids and we're just so good and holy and God really likes us. And then it's them over there, those miserable, rotten, God really just can't wait to get even with them. And he just hates all them. No, no, it's all of us. We're all God's creation. His heart breaks for every single one, especially the ones who are lost. Especially the kids who are lost. Because there's us and there's them. Some are home and some are not yet there. And so it shifts our perspective. It's a big shift that we have to make in our lives. Instead of looking at ourselves as two camps, instead of looking at the world as this separate thing, we have to begin to make this shift in our lives because you can't lose what you don't already own. I haven't lost a Ferrari, everybody. I never had one. Come on. Come on, somebody. I haven't. I can't. So if I get in a Ferrari after church today, it's not mine, everybody. I can't tell the officer, right? I'm sorry, officer. I lost this. I just, I just misplaced. No, it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine to begin with. You have to have it in order to do it. Now, some of you may have lost a Ferrari, and that's a whole other story, all right? That's just, there's prayer for you after the service, all right? You're obviously making horrible decisions. Number two, second thing, you should count things that matter. Second story we learned from the shepherd at the beginning in this parable is you should count the things that matter. And that speaks to spiritual community. There are some churches that are like, we don't count. We don't count anything. We don't care about numbers. You're just all wrapped up in numbers. You just, we don't count this. We, don't, we just don't care. You should count the things that matter. You should count the things that matter. Like, I know that I have signs. I, I know how many children. I don't think, like, I have between two and five children, right? I just don't, I don't, I don't think. I know that I have three children, all right? My wife and I, we count them all the time. Because when we're in public, we're thinking, you got one, I got one. Where is number three, all right? Where is, just where is, if you see them, somebody, if you see them, bring them back to me, all right? We just, we count, you should count what matters. 
You always have to count where you are. Hopefully you know how much money you have in the bank account. You should count your finances. Hopefully you know how much is on your credit card. Come on, somebody. You should count the things that matter because you know your finances. Better yet, you should know those things. If you listen to your healthy friend, you should count your macros. Come on, somebody. I had to Google what that was. I had no idea. I had still, let's say I changed your life. You need to count your macros. I don't, but you need to count your macros. That's a, that's a mentality. If you want to listen to those, you should count the things that matter. That's why we as a church, we count the things that matter. We count attendance. We count salvation. We count people in small groups. We count small group leaders. We count the offering. We count the things that matter in the kingdom because God says we should count the things that matter, especially salvations. You say, well, I don't care about numbers. God cares about the kingdom of God. God cares about people in the kingdom. Some of you need to know how to count what matters. Some of you know how many pets you have. Some of you, you cat people, you don't know how many pets you have. That's a problem, all right? That's a, you ever notice cat people? Cat people never know how many cats they have. It's like, I just, I don't know, five, seven. I just, they just, they just come and go. They just... Some of them you never see for a year, right? They're just, they're just, uh, that's weird. I don't know. That's just weird. Jot this last one down. When something, I, I get derailed a little on the cats. When something is lost, it changes your focus. You count what matters. You can't lose what you don't originally possess. But then when something is lost, it changes your focus. See, the shepherd that day, he woke up in maintenance mode to care for the sheep. He's going out there to care for the sheep. But because he cares about the sheep and because they matter, he counts them. And he realizes that one is missing. And so it changes the whole agenda for the day. It changes everything that he's about to do for the day because he woke up ready to go feed the sheep, take care of the sheep, make sure the sheep are comfortable and fed and well done. He woke up with all of that on his mind, but because he counted what mattered and now that he realized what was lost, it changed the agenda. He left the 99 and he searched for the one that was lost. It changes his focus. And I really believe it should do the same for us. You see, what happened for the shepherd is that he went from maintenance mode to searching mode. He went from maintenance to search. And I think the same thing needs to happen in the church because too often churches just fall into maintenance mode. Come on, I told you, buckle your seatbelts up this morning, all right? Too often we fall into maintenance mode where we're maintaining our systems, maintaining our programs, we're maintaining everything that we like to do, maintaining the people, just maintaining, make sure everybody's happy and everybody's well-fed spiritually and everybody's just going along and kind of building. And some people would say, we're building a deep church. We're just really building a deep church. And while there's nothing wrong with that, and you should grow spiritually, and victory is designed to help you to do that, there's nothing wrong with those. I just want to say something that might sound a little controversial. We are more obsessed with reaching people than keeping people happy. We're more obsessed with reaching people with the gospel of Christ than keeping people happy. We're not in maintenance mode. And so the principle here, there's a principle in that, that here at Victory... You shouldn't, we're not trying to make you some deep, well-rounded Christian who just has everything together but never does anything with your faith. That's not the goal. I want you to be deep and well-rounded. I want you to grow spiritually, but I don't want you to be somebody who never does anything with your faith. And so as we begin this series, Beyond These Walls, it's reaching out with our faith. And you'll see all throughout September, we have these opportunities. These opportunities to put our faith into action. We're not trying to make you have a comfortable Christian experience. Why? Because the church should never be in maintenance mode should always be searching, always be looking, because that's the heart of God. God's heart is for the lost. God looks down and he sees some of his kids who are headed for a crisis eternity. And so we have to leave the 99 to search for the one. We've got to stay into search. It changes the whole agenda for our Sundays, the agenda of our ministry. The reason we come together as spiritual community is not to make Christians comfortable. It's to find the one that was lost and bring them back into the kingdom. So we don't have an us and them mentality. We have an all of us mentality. We have an all of us mentality. Some are found and some are lost. 
Because it breaks God's heart when they lose it. It changes God's focus when there's kids who are still lost. There's people who are still lost and headed to hell. It changes God's focus. You ever have that happen to you where you misplace something? Where you lose something? You misplace your keys or your wallet. I, I have this I have the spiritual gifting of losing my things. All right? That's just my that's my personal spiritual gifting. I don't know what yours are. But I lose things that are lost. You ever have where you changes your focus? Now you have to find them. And God help you if you ever lose your phone. Come on, somebody. If you ever, if you ever misplace your phone, you just think like they're going to call the police. Like if I haven't posted on Instagram in 10 minutes, they will think that I've perished. Like people will call the cops and just think that I've lost. And you ever, you're headed down the road, right? You're going somewhere and you realize halfway down the street that you forgot your phone. And you just, you just cry, Lord, help me. I don't know if I can breathe oxygen without it. My God in heaven, I don't know if I can survive. I have to turn around. You forget where you're going. You have to turn around and get your phone. I would do that survey. How many have turned around and gone back five miles, ten miles to get there? Come on, somebody. Yeah, just to get their phone. You're trying to evaluate the meaning because you're completely distracted by that which is lost. How much more God? How much more his eyes are on those that are lost, that he's searching for them? It says that he's searching for them. And he loves us. Don't get me wrong. He loves us. He inhabits the praises of his people. But he's he's not all that interested in making us comfortable while there are those who are still lost. There are those who are still Lost. There's an amazing story I heard about a pastor. His name was Billy Joe Doherty. He's passed away now, gone to be with the Lord. But he pastored a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When he was 39 years old, pastoring this booming church, he and his wife, Sharon, woke up one night and their house was on fire. Smoke was billowing out of the windows. Everything's going, all the alarms are going off. And so they, they rushed their kids. They had four kids together in the hallway. And they break through one of the doors and they get out onto the lawn. And they realize when they get outside that the two youngest kids didn't follow. That they were still in the house. And so by this point, the house is in dangerous situation, right? The walls are starting to crumble. And so the firefighters are trying to keep Pastor Billy Joe from going back into the home. And he bursts through the line and he gets through the front door and he finds his two youngest kids in the hallway, just huddled together. And he picks them up and he carries them out of the house. And he suffers second degree burns on his arms and on his face. But there was nothing that he would not do to save those two children out of the fire. There's nothing that he wouldn't do to get them out of the burning house. See, I think that applies to the church in every way. I think too often, many times, every Sunday that we come together, we don't view the world as the burning house very often. And that there are kids inside who are still in danger. Never in that entire situation do you sit down and have a picnic with the two that you've already saved on the outside. Never in that situation when there are still kids in the house do you sit down and just comfort and cuddle with the two kids that are safe. No, our hearts should be that there are still two who are lost. There are still two who can be saved. We've got to go back. We've got to leverage everything we have to go back in the burning house and to save the two that are lost. God's eyes are on the lost. God's heart is for the lost. It's obsessed with finding that which is lost. Too many Christians want to just sit on the lawn and have the picnic. We want to just have the picnic and, and celebrate and sing songs and cuddle with the two that are already there. And God is saying we have to shift our focus. And so we'll risk it all time and again. We'll give everything that we've got to go back in the burning house to rescue out those that are lost because that's Christ's heart for the world. Jesus shifts gears in story number two. We find it in verse eight. And by the way, Jesus, every time he preached, and I love this about him, is he always crossed barriers, especially religious barriers, lines that they had drawn. But he not only did that, he crossed economic barriers. And he crossed, he crossed religious, spiritual barriers. He crossed socioeconomic barriers. He crossed racial barriers. Every time that he spoke, he would speak. He would take these lines that man had drawn around people. And man had said, okay, this is marginalized. This is, and he would reach out and he would love all people when he would speak. And so Jesus reaching across every boundary. And so in this second verse, in verse 8, in the second story, he speaks directly to the women, which would have been unheard of in this time period. 
in this culture. He speaks directly to them because Jesus is always reaching out. When he teaches his spiritual, it's for all. So verse 8, he says, Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. And she says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Two principles we find in this story. Jot it down if you're taking notes. First one is that the value of what is lost determines the intensity of the search. The value of what's lost determines the intensity. When you lose something that's not really valuable, you don't look for it, right? You don't really spend all your time. You don't turn your whole life upside down. Like at our house, you cannot lay down on the couch without getting stuck by one of those little hairpins, right, that goes in the hair. I don't know. And, and we just, there's thousands. But when someone needs one, right, to pull their hair back or to put a hairpin, they're nowhere to be found. Come on, somebody. They just, dis- I don't know where they go. I think the devil steals them. I just don't know where they, they just disappear. But when you lose one or you can't find one, you don't turn your whole life upside down looking for it. You go to Costco and buy 7,000 of them for 50 cents. Come on, somebody. You just... You just, you don't, you don't spend a lot of time looking for it because it's not all that valuable. In high school, for one of my physics classes, we had to do, as a project, we had to float a boat made out of cardboard on the LSU lakes with us in it. Come on, somebody, that went really well. I just, I'll just tell you right now, that did not go. But we, we got together like 100, 100 boxes made out of cardboard, and we got duct tape because we're men, and you can fix anything with duct tape. And so we put this thing together in the back of my truck and went to the LSU lakes. It lasted about 10 seconds before we almost drowned, and then we got it back out. And we put it in the back of my truck, and we headed back to the school. Now, we're on the interstate doing about 80, 85, right? And I've got this thing, and people are honking their horns. And you probably have guessed already what happens to cardboard when you don't tie it down and you go 85 miles an hour, all right? Because we got back to the school, and it was like, where's the boat? There's nothing, nothing in the back of the truck. Now, let me tell you what I didn't do. I didn't say, you know, guys, I'm really afraid of the Baton Rouge local government, and I think that we should spend two weeks looking for each piece of this card where we can... No, we took our C-minus and we went on our way, all right? We never thought about it, never thought about it again, right? It's bad, right? Confession's bad for the reputation, good for the soul. Come on, somebody. I didn't, I didn't spend time looking for every box across, spread across Baton Rouge, across the interstate, because it wasn't all that valuable. I didn't really care about it. And I realize that that's bad for the environment. I realize that. But what I'm trying to get across to you is that the value of the thing determines the intensity of the search. Because when you misplace something or you lose something that's valuable, you will overturn your entire house looking for it. You will not, you will not stop until you find it. The search is great because the value is great. This woman, these 10 coins wouldn't just have been 10 random coins. This would have been her dowry. This was represented, the woman's dowry, which is what her father would have given her in this culture that now her personal net worth is what she had to offer a potential suitor. It's what she had. So, of course, when she loses one of them, she'll turn the whole house upside down looking for it because the value is great. And Jesus is helping us understand this is how God sees people. And if we're the church, if we're the body of Christ, this is how we should see people. That the value is great. Second thing we learned in this story is that heaven celebrates when the lost are found. It celebrates. In fact, that's a theme that runs through every single verse in chapter 15. Every single story that he tells, that at the end of it, when they find what was lost, they call everybody together and they say, we're going to have a celebration. Come and rejoice with me. Come and celebrate with me because I found the thing that I lost. I realize every single Sunday when people make decisions for Christ, when we have that time of the service where we just offer and people make that decision to follow Jesus, heaven celebrates like touchdown dance celebrates. Come on, it's football season now. We can understand what that looks like. Touchdown by any NFL historians. Anybody remember Icky Woods? 
Anybody? Anybody at all? That's just a big fail. I'm going to keep on going there. Right. So this icky, the icky shuffle was like the original touchdown dance. All right. I'm just going to give you a little history lesson. This is free, everybody. It was and it was awful. It was just like nowadays their touchdown dances, end zone dances are choreographed by like dance teams and they have half the team involved. Right. And I'm convinced they practice the touchdown dance more than they practice the play that scored them the touchdown. It's just I, I just I'm some fence. But but the icky shuffle was the original. Right. And icky would just you know, get into end zone. And he would just kind of do like this, like this, just like this. And then he would spike it. It was awful, everybody. Right? It was just terrible. But touchdown dance. That's what we went to understand that all of heaven breaks into a dance and a celebration when one who was lost makes that decision. Every single time that one who was lost makes that decision for Christ, they break into the celebration. And I just want to pause for a moment because sometimes we kind of gloss over that. And I just want to celebrate that in these summer months, these last three months, 42 people have made decisions for Christ on Sunday morning. That means there are over 40, over 40 celebrations in heaven that victory is responsible for. Over 40 celebrations where they just go completely crazy, go wild, celebrate. Because one of God's lost kids has come home. One of the lost has been found. That's why we exist as a church. It's what we're here to accomplish. It's what our mission is. You say, well, what is the vision? What is the mission? It's Christ's vision. It's for the lost. And so you would imagine that at this time, Probably the people around Jesus or the ones standing around would probably say, well, Jesus, you know, that's those are some nice stories, but we're not sheep. Right. And we're not we're not coins and we're we're people and we're not lost. We know where we are. And so Jesus tells one more story to demonstrate what he means by lost, what he means by those who are lost. Because He's told about sheep and he's told about coins. And now he tells one more story. And most of us know it as the story of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. And so Jesus talks about a father who has two sons. And one of them comes to him, his youngest son. He comes to him and he says, Dad, I really wish that you were dead. I want my inheritance now. I really wish that, you know, it always happened after the father had passed away. But he says, I want it now. And so the father gives it to him. He divides his estate between the two sons. It says in verse 13. And not long after that, the younger son got all together he had, that inheritance. And he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his life in wild living. And the Bible tells us next that an economic recession hits. And the jobs dry up and there's no way for him to support himself. And so he's wasted all the money that he's brought with him and there's no way for him to do. So he gets a job as a person who feeds pigs. And then in verse 16, it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I want you to know that that's an incredible picture of what sin does to us. It's an incredible picture because sin will always take you further than you ever want it to go. It'll cost you more than you ever thought you would pay. It'll make you stay longer than you ever thought you would stay. And so he has this this moment where he realizes where he is, that he wants the food that even the pigs are getting, and he's not even getting that. And so he devises this plan. He wakes up. He realizes his life is broken. He realizes he's disconnected from his father. And so he comes up with this plan. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. He says, so here's what I'll do. In verse, I'll set out, I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. It's what a lot of people do when they wake up. They wake up to the sin and the brokenness in their life. And they think, well, okay, if I can just get it together. If I can just grovel enough before God, if I can just do, maybe he'll take me back. Maybe he'll take me back. So he got up and he went to his father. And I want you to see this verse. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. See, the heart of the father, the heart of the father was different than the son expected. 
Because the son has these, these scenarios running through his mind, but none of them were this. He said, if I can just grovel enough, if I can just become a slave or a servant, he thought, if the father, I do whatever punishment you're going to have to do, but just make me a slave or put me back. But the father has compassion and he runs to the son. And the story goes on to say how he celebrates that the son has come home again. And he begins just to throw a party about him. Two principles as we close. Because nothing could be further from the truth than what the son thought would happen. That the father would try to get even with him or the father would make him a slave or a servant. Two principles as we close. Loss is not defined by location, but by affiliation. Jesus is helping understand there are people all around us who are found geographically, but they're disconnected relationally from the father. But they don't know who the father is. When we use the term in victory that we're after God's lost kids, when we use that term that we're after the lost, we're after those, it doesn't mean they don't know where they are. It means they don't know who the father is. When we're after the lost, it doesn't mean that they're somehow lost geographically. It means they don't know who their father is. They don't know what the father's heart is towards them, that God loves them more than they could possibly imagine. Because when they try to imagine it, they can't imagine a father who would run down the road and welcome them back. They can't see that, and so they're lost. And they can't come to grips with it, and they think if they could just fix themselves. But God is saying, come. The father's heart is for the lost. He's not trying to get even with them. He's not trying to punish them. He's not trying to destroy them. He wants to welcome them home. There's a true story that I heard that beautifully illustrates this story. And it's told by the daughter, Christina. It's about a mom and a daughter, Maria and Christina, who lived outside of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And they lived outside of the main city in Brazil. And Christina tells the story how Maria's husband, Christina's father, passed away when she was just an infant. And Maria was fiercely independent, and so she tried to raise the daughter on her own, but there weren't a lot of jobs in the village, and so she did whatever she could to raise her daughter. But they were still poor, and they still lived on a dirt floor in the village. And as Christina grew up, she began to dream of going to the city. She had these dreams of of the allure and the fun and the things she could have, but Maria knew that if they went there, that there was no way for her to support them, and that if she came to it to support her daughter, to make a living, to just survive, that she would turn to a life that she would be ashamed of. And so she tried to protect her daughter and they stayed in the village, but Christina was strong headed. And so when she turned 15, the next morning, Maria woke up and found her daughter's bed empty and all of her things gone. And she knew exactly where her daughter had gone. And so Maria gets together what money she had and she buys a bus ticket into the city. And before she leaves the village, she stops in this little pharmacy at the edge. She steps into a photo booth and she uses whatever money she had to make as many photocopies of a picture of herself as she could. And all the way into the city, she began to dot a note on the back of those pictures. And when she arrived in Rio, she began to go to all of the places that she knew her daughter would have had to go to survive. All the places she suspected that she would be. And so she went to every hotel and every nightclub and every place that she could think of to try to find her little girl. And always coming up empty, never, never finding her anywhere, always coming up. And every time before she would leave that place, she would put that picture on a mirror or on a message board or on a phone booth, whatever she could, wherever she suspected that her daughter might be, that she might see it. And she never found her little girl. And so with tears in her eyes, she boarded a bus back to her village when her money ran out. And she just prayed and she hoped that one day she might be reunited with her daughter. And Christina tells the story that a few weeks later, Christina came stumbling down the steps of a hotel where she had spent the night trapped in the life that her mother had always feared that she would be. 
broken and she would wish that she could just go back to the dirt floor in the village. But she thought there's no way, there's no way her mom could still love her. There's no way she could still go back. She says that she stumbled to the steps that day that she looked across that hotel lobby and she saw a familiar face. Saw a face that she knew. And said there were tears in her eyes as she stumbled across the lobby and this knot in her throat and she picked up that picture of her mom. And she turned it over and she read the note that her mom had written her. And it simply said, I don't care what you've done and I don't care what you've become. Please just come home. And Christina said that that day she got on a bus and she went home. Church, it's important for us to remember that there are people who are trapped in guilt and shame. There are people who feel trapped. And the sad reality is, is they expect a religious response from the church. They expect God to be mad at them. They expect religious people to judge them for the choices that they've made. They expect to be pushed away. They can't imagine. They want to come home. They want to be reconnected with the Father. But they can't imagine that God would love a person like that. That the heart of God could be for a person like that. And yet, church, that should be our response. Our Father's heart is, I don't care what you've done and I don't care what you've become. All I want is to have a relationship with you. I want you to come home. That God's heart is breaking for the loss. He's distracted by the fact that there are still kids who are headed for a Christless eternity. And our heart should be for them. It's not us and them. We are all God's children. Some are home and some are lost. Some are safe and some are not yet. And so we have to do everything that we have, leverage everything that we have, anything that we have to bring them back, everything that we've got as a church to go back into the burning building, to pull back out those who are still lost, those who are living, but they're dying and they're headed to hell. And it's all predicated based on the level of our obedience. That they're headed for hell based on the level of our obedience. If we're going to step up and be the heart of Christ in this world. Shame on us as Christians if we ever make it about ourselves. Shame on us if we ever hold the church hostage to our own personal preferences. If we ever make it about our own selfish desires, if we ever say it's about what I want, church, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about the fact that you and I at some point in our life woke up shamed and embarrassed about the things that we had done. And God helped us to find our way home. And now it's our responsibility to do the same thing for everyone else. Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. If you hear anything that I said today, I hope you hear that God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And that he wants to have a relationship with you. That he's not mad at you. He's not looking to get even with you. He wants you to come home. And so I just want to pray with you this morning. Some of you are far from God today. You're far from God. And whether it was because of a decision that you made or a choice, something you chose that you thought would fulfill you. You thought it would fill up your life. You thought it would fulfill the dreams that you had and you chased that thing, whatever it was. And now you woke up one day and you realize that you're broken. That you're empty. And you realize that you want to come home, 
but you think that somehow God won't accept you or somehow God is mad at you, I'm here to tell you God loves you. The Father waits for you. He wants to throw his arms around you. He wants you to come home. And so if that's you today, if you say, I'm tired of running, I'm tired of always hiding. I'm tired of all of this. I want to come home. If that's you today, I just want to pray with you. It would be my honor to help you take that step back towards God. No one else is looking around, but would you do me the favor if you say, that's me. Say, that's me. I want to take this step. I'm tired of running. I want to come home. That's you today. Would you just slip up your hand and say, include me in that prayer? Great job. Great job. Proud of you. Hey, just be bold. Say, that's me today. I'm tired of running. I want to come home. I just want to pray with you. Whether you're in this room or you're watching online, I just want to pray a prayer with you. I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you come to the front. It's not about embarrassing you. I want to connect you with a father who loves you. So anyone else, just be bold. Say, I'm tired of running. If you want to join those three. Say, anybody else before we pray? Come on, church, and we're going to pray this prayer with you. I can give you the words to the prayers. We all pray it with you, but you've got to mean it in your heart. Come on, church, let's pray with those who want to make that decision today. Just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I repent of all I've done. I want to come home. Change me. Make me brand new. Say these words. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. God, I thank you for the miracle that you're doing in these lives, Lord. God, I thank you for lives that have crossed from death to life. New life, God, that are headed into the kingdom of God. Lord, that you love them. God, that you want them in your kingdom. And they're a part of your family, Lord. And Lord, because we count things that matter, we know that it's not enough. We know that there are thousands, Lord, who are headed for a Christless eternity. Help us always to be a church, God, that's not maintaining, but that's searching. That's always looking for the lost, Lord. Always reaching out for those, Lord, who don't know you. Help us always place the highest priority on people that are lost. God, help us to make the biggest difference that we can possibly make. Lord, let us always be looking to help those find their way home. God, we thank you that we can be a part of this great search and rescue mission, Father. That you use us. God, that we never forget where you brought us from. We never forget who we were, God, before you changed us. Lord, we never take an us and them mentality, but Lord, we see them all. Give us eyes for the lost. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Guys, can we celebrate for those lives that made choices today?